Good morning, church. It's always a privilege and an honor to be before you guys uh, this morning. You know, Christians throughout church history have believed that every time the Bible was open, every time it is preached, that God is speaking to us. So this morning, we're going to see what God has to say to us this morning uh, in the book of Nahum, which is in the Old Testament, belongs to the collection of books known as the Minor Prophets. The book of Nahum is after the book of Micah. You can always use your table of contents. How many, by a show of hands, how many people have actually read the book of Nahum? Okay, let's go. Well, we're going to see what what the Lord has to say to us in chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And the title of my sermon this morning is The Certainty of Divine Judgment. The Certainty of Divine Judgment. I'll give you a little bit uh, more time to turn. So that's Nahum chapter 1, starting at verse 1. It reads this way. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Alkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Let's look to the Lord uh, for help in understanding uh, his word this morning. God, we come to you asking that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to be with us this morning, helping us to understand your word. Um, I pray, God, that you would use me to communicate truth to your people. Help me to do it with clarity. I pray that your name would be glorified, um, that someone would come to repentance. I pray that someone's faith uh, would, would be strengthened today. I pray that we would all walk out of here in carriage and trusting in you. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever been angry with someone? I mean, like, really angry. So you know that feeling I'm talking about, when your blood is boiling, you feel like your patience has run out, you know, you feel like you're up to your wits end and you're just ready to lash out on someone. And let's be honest, it doesn't take much for us to get upset. We lose our cool over the smallest things at times. Let somebody cut you off in traffic, right? 
let, let your spouse forget to flush the toilet or leave the toilet seat up. The Ravens lose. All right? You get a parking ticket. You have to replace an appliance in your home that's broken. If you're Tim Curry, you get upset when you order some shoes and they, don't, they never come. <laughs> you see, that's the difference between us and God. You see, God never loses his cool. He never flies off the handle with these impulsive outbursts of anger directed towards people. You see, God's wrath, his anger, is always the settled, determined response of a righteous God against sin. I wonder how many of you are uncomfortable talking about the wrath of God. You know, God's wrath is not one of his more popular attributes. We love that God is full of love, compassion, grace, mercy, that he's forgiven, that he's patient. Not so much when it comes to God's wrath. If we had our way, we would prefer that God never got upset at all. But you see, the late R.C. Sproul, he reminds us of something. He says this. He says, a God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, no wrath is an idol. Be careful, church, not to form and fashion a God in your mind that never gets upset, that tolerates your sin. God is never okay when we sin. He must judge all sin. And here in our text this morning, we see this message of judgment being proclaimed through the prophet Nahum. We don't know much about Nahum except for the fact that he's from a town called Elkosh, which we see in verse 1. Some believe that Elkosh was a, a, a village in Galilee. Some believe that Nahum was a, a Judean. We really don't know much. The scripture doesn't say much about him or his background. But what we do know is that Nahum in this oracle, now an oracle is a message of, of weighty importance, uh, a burden. Now he wastes no time in this oracle getting to the heart of the issue, and that is God is not pleased. Let's let that sink in for a minute. God is not pleased. That's a scary thing. Family, don't walk out of here with the wrong idea thinking that God is just cool with everybody. Don't, don't, don't walk out of here thinking that God never gets upset. God is not pleased. Maybe you think that you and God have the best relationship, that, you know, you, God is just okay that he tolerates your sin, that he's okay with your pride, your rebellion, uh, your, your covetousness, your divisiveness, your pride, your, your sexual immorality, that he's okay with these things. Well, sorry to break it to you. God is not pleased. In our text, God is not, he's not pleased with the city of Nineveh for their crimes against his people, Judah. Now, Nineveh, let me get you some background about, about Nineveh. So if you remember the story of Jonah, this is where we, we hear of Nineveh. Right, Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So they were the, the great power in the region from the 8th century to the mid-7th century. They dominated the ancient Near East, so from 900 to 612 B.C. It is said that at their height, at the height of their power, that, they put, that, that the city possessed a, a massive wall that surrounded the city. It consisted of large palace complexes. They had a number of world-class amenities, such as parks, 
gardens, things of that nature. It was a gigantic city that was impregnable. It was a very fortified city. Now, a century earlier, the prophet Jonah was sent to Nineveh with a message from God, and that message was judgment. And we know, if you read the story of Jonah before, that the people responded to Jonah's preaching, and they repented. So the book of Nahum is almost like a sequel to the book of Jonah. So, but now it's 100 years later, and the people have fallen back into their sinful ways. In fact, they've grown worse. The Assyrians, they were some wicked and, and ruthless people. And their thirst for power and, and international dominance, they burned cities. They cut people's heads off. You talk about taking a head count, like they literally cut people's heads off. They placed people on poles. Whatever they had to do to gain power, they did it. So they, as, as they grew in power, you know, they thought that they were invincible. None of us thought that they were in charge and in control of things because they were so dominant. Now, can we say that at the height of Nineveh's power, at the height of the Assyrian Empire, could we say that they ever reached a point where they were really in control and in charge of things, that they were the ultimate authority? Let's look at it this way. Do we ever reach a point in our life where we can say that we are in control, that we are the masters of our own fate, as some would have you to believe? Now, the self-confident but foolish answer would be yes. We are, in, we are in control. But you see, one thing this pandemic has taught us all, it has shown us, I think God has used this to show us how little control that we have over things. It has changed the way that we worship. It has changed the way we send our kids to school. It has changed the way we work our jobs, that we go to the shopping malls, that we go out to restaurants. It has changed the way that we do life. I got news for you this morning. There's only room in this universe for one sovereign, and that's God. You see, Nineveh, they would soon realize that they, were, that they were not in control. That is what the book of Nahum is about. God used the prophet Nahum to pronounce judgment against uh, the wicked city of Nineveh. And chapter 1 is just a prelude to this battle that was set to take place between God and the Assyrian Empire. You see, God was raising up the Babylonians at this time. I don't want to jump too far ahead. I hate when like somebody spoils like a movie that I didn't see yet, but I'm going to be that guy today. I'm going to jump a little, little ahead. If you haven't read the book, I encourage you to read it. But at this time, God was raising up the Babylonians to destroy the Assyrians. So Assyria would be completely overthrown. And that's what happened in 612 BC when the Babylonians seized the capital city of Nineveh. Now, we see that God's enemies are not in control. But also, we see that God's people are not in control. Judah would learn this as well. As, think about Judah's position. So they're watching Assyria come into power during these years. And Assyria is conquering nation after nation. So the Assyrians... They, they conquered the ten, they destroyed the ten northern tribes of Israel, and Judah is just, just sitting there. So now, you, you have Judah feeling hopeless and fearful. 
Now, I don't want to paint this picture of Judah being like these helpless victims. You see, God's people were sent into captivity because of their disobedience. They fell back into idolatry, worshiping other gods. So Judah was no helpless victim. So they were sent into captivity, and those that were not in captivity soon feared that they would be. So you had the greatest power in the world at the time, the Assyrians, oppressing the people of Judah. We can say that things looked hopeless for Judah. Judah was without strength. I wonder how many of us today find ourselves in situations where we don't have strength, where things look hopeless, where we're fearful. Who among us today needs a word of comfort from God? So it was during this time that Nahum prophesied. In fact, his name in Hebrew means comfort. How fitting is it that during the time when God's people needed comfort, he sends a prophet whose name in Hebrew means comfort. And that's the main point of my sermon. That's the main theme that we see in the book of Nahum, is that God will destroy his enemies and will redeem his people. But let's look at it this way. God is, he is severe with his enemies, but he's good to his people. God speaks a word of terror and judgment to his enemies, but he speaks a word of peace and comfort to his people. By no means will God let the guilty go unpunished. Since God will punish his enemies, therefore, brothers and sisters, it is of the utmost importance that we take refuge in him. This morning, I want to examine this contrast between how God treats his enemies and how he treats his people. So first, looking at verse 2, the prophet, he starts his oracle describing God's character. Nineveh doesn't know this God that's about to bring judgment upon them. So who is this God that brings judgment? What is he like? Well, verse 2, it says, the Lord is a jealous God, an avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. How can we say that God is jealous? Look, I get jealous sometimes. When I scroll on social media and I'm seeing people live like these extravagant lifestyles, and I'm like, man, I'm living this ordinary life. I get jealous sometimes. Maybe you get jealous when you see people possess certain gifts and talents that you want. You don't have those. And maybe this caused you to, to be jealous. Let's be clear about something. God is never jealous of people. So when the Bible talks about God being jealous, first and foremost, God is jealous of his own honor first. Second, God is not jealous of people. Rather, he's jealous for his people. And that's where I want to kind of go with this. You see, God loves his people a great deal. He has a certain zeal for his people. He demands that his covenant people remain loyal and faithful to him. We see this in the first two commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make an image in the likeness of anything. Right? Bow down and worship that image. One theologian says this about God's jealousy. He says the Lord's jealousy refers to his zeal to protect and defend the honor of his covenant relationship with his people. When was the last time you stopped and reflected on the reality that you are in covenant with God. That means you have a relationship with God. A relationship 
that you didn't have at one time. When we were born into this world, we were born with a broken relationship because of sin. And that relationship is only made possible through Jesus Christ. God is provoked to jealousy when his covenant people go around worshiping idols. Now today, we don't uh, make golden calves and bow down and worship that. Today, idolatry looks a little different in in the 21st century. I think of the idols of, of money, sex, family, work, success, comfort, reputation. God is angry when you and I violate our covenant loyalty that is due to him. But you see, God is not pleased when his people are treated cruelly. When his people are mistreated, this makes God very angry. What a comfort it is to know that God is not some detached deity, that he's not just sitting up there smiling while his people are afflicted and oppressed. God so closely identifies with his people that when people mistreat his people, it's almost as they're mistreating God. You remember the voice that Saul heard when he was on his way to persecute Christians. Jesus said to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Assyrians, they have violated his people. And this has made God angry. God's anger then causes him to take vengeance on his adversaries. God is a God of justice. We see this all throughout verse 2. The prophet describes God as an avenging God. He says the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. God will not let wrongdoing go unpunished forever. God wasn't pleased with the injustice uh, his people were experiencing at the hands of the Assyrians. God is not pleased with the injustice that is taking place today in America and all across this world. I think of the, the, the justice that has yet to take place in the death of Breonna Taylor. You think God is happy with that? Family, there is coming a day when all wrongs will be made right. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. And this is God's word to Moses. He says this, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. Well, one might say, I want justice now. I'm pretty sure Judah was feeling this way as they were being oppressed and afflicted by the Assyrians. But look at verse 3 of our text. And the prophet Nahum, he reminds us of a very important characteristic of God, and that is God is patient. It says the Lord is slow to anger. I always stand in awe of God's patience. As I said before, God is not like some hot-tempered tyrant He doesn't react in in a capricious manner. No, he's patient. Check this out. I love my family, right? I love my wife, kids, my mom. I'm talking about my immediate family. I love all of my family. Now, if someone was to hurt them or try to hurt them, Eric Hill would not be slow to anger. Like, I wouldn't. I would happily do my time on my bunk. I just ask that you keep my commissary full, okay? 
Look, I'm not perfect. God is still working on me, right? He's still doing the work of saving me. But I'm so happy that God is not like me, that he's not like you. Right? God is very patient. God, he wasn't pleased with what the Assyrians were doing to Judah at this time, but he was very patient with the Assyrians. We see this when he sent Jonah some hundred years earlier to the city to pronounce judgment against them with the goal of repentance. God gives sinners the opportunity to repent. That's good news. As I'm standing up here, I'm looking at all of these sinners out here. I'm looking at people who God has been patient with. We should really stop right now and just praise God for his patience. Today, it's always today to respond to God's gracious call to repentance and faith. I wonder how many of us today need to repent. Don't delay repentance. Those who delay repentance are storing up divine wrath and judgment for themselves. Don't be like Nineveh, for whom at this time it was too late. God's judgment was irreversible at this point. But like I said, he gave Nineveh, he gave the Assyrian Empire enough time to repent. You see, God, he exercises divine patience before he executes divine judgment. The Apostle Peter, he reminds us of this truth in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. And you don't have to, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it. It says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Family, never make the mistake. Never mistake the patience of God for aloofness or weakness. God is not aloof. He's certainly not weak. Look at the second part of our text, verse 3. And this brings us to our second point of examination. It says, God is great in power. One Marvel character I enjoy watching, and I don't watch Marvel that much, but when I do watch it, I enjoy watching Bruce Banner. We know him to be the incredible Hulk, right? Now, out of all the Marvel characters, it is said that he possesses the greatest raw strength of any being on earth. Now look, I'm talking about the Marvel Universe. I'm not talking about this earth. So don't walk out of here saying, hey, man, he's, he's talking about the Incredible Hulk being the strongest person on, on earth. Marvel Universe. Okay? So, if you know anything about the Incredible Hulk, right, he can jump these great distances. He can land anywhere, and he doesn't even hurt himself. His skin is made of, I don't even know what his skin is made of, but it allows him to resist damage from weapons and damage from natural elements. As his rage increases, what happens? His power increases, right? His strength increases. When he's upset, you don't want to be around the Incredible Hulk. Now, and as strong as the Incredible Hulk character is, is he more powerful 
and God. At the height of the Assyrian Empire, as strong as they were, and make no mistake about it, they were powerful. But can we ever say that their power was any match for God? No man or nation has ever been able to contend against God and prevail. If you're fighting against God this morning, and I don't know like how that looks for you, but I'm going to give you some wisdom. Stop. Just quit. It's no way that you will be able to prevail. So just quit. Look at the second part of verse 3, going through verse 5 of our text. It says this. It describes God's power. It says this. The prophet says, his way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Do you see the imagery here? Do you see the cosmic power of God in these verses? God has created and controls all the elements mentioned in these verses. God has authority over the wind and storm. We see this in the New Testament. When Jesus and the disciples were in the boat, the disciples began to panic because the storm started overtaking the boat. And what did Jesus do? Speaks to the storm, peace be still. That's it for that. All right? In our text, again, it says, God rebukes the, uh, rebukes the sea and makes it dry. This reminds us of the Exodus. God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. They crossed on dry land. The Egyptians come after them, and the water swallowed them up. It mentions Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon. These regions were uh, known for their mountains. So hills and mountains are symbols for uh, permanence and immovability. But you see... As strong as these things are, they can't stand against God. Assyria may have controlled much of the ancient Near East, but their power is no match for God. God has limitless resources at his disposal. Psalm 89 and 11 affirms this truth about God's power. It says, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. This message of impending judgment against Assyria should have caused them to fear the Lord's power. At this point, we have to remember that divine judgment is coming, which leads us to a very important question in verse 6. It says this, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Answer, no one. No one. No matter how powerful a nation may become, God still exercises ultimate sovereignty over that nation. God is the only one who could stop someone as powerful as the Assyrians were at this time. It's sad, you know, when, when us Christians, when God has proven himself time and time again to deliver us out of the most just terrible situations, he's shown his power and we still doubt. God's power. We think that he can't deliver us from certain situations. Judah was probably 
doubting God's power at this time. Saints, I plead with you this morning, trust in God. He's able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. I don't know what problems you're currently facing. I don't. I'm God. I mean, I'm not God. (laughs) But I do know God. And I know that he's able to fix those problems. And the greatest problem that we have as humans is sin. The Bible says that we're slaves to sin. We need to be delivered from the bondage of sin. Well, brothers and sisters, God has the power to do just that. His grace can reach down to the lowest depths and save you. Is there really anything that is too hard for God? Lastly, we see in verse 7 of our text is this, is that the Lord is good. It says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So let's look at, let's examine God's goodness. Up until this point, we've been talking about God's wrath, his, his power, his judgment, which is all bad news for the Assyrian Empire. But what is bad news for God's enemies is good news for his people. God's people would no longer be oppressed. They would no longer be in captivity. You see, family, God is good. Let's not gloss over these words. Who else can refer to themselves in this way, that they're good? I know you, if we, if we went out and asked a hundred people, hey, are you a good person? If not all, most would probably say, yes, I'm a good person. But you see, when I read my Bible, I see something different. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, it says this, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. But when it comes to God, it says that he's good. I came across this story. This woman, she, she had a double mastectomy. And two months after the surgery, she goes into the uh, doctor for a follow-up. And the doctor hit her with some bad news. He told her that the cancer had spread. Now, a friend of this woman looked this woman in the eye, and she, she asked her. She said, well, what do you think about God now? Listen to this woman's response. She says this. She responded this way. She says, as I sought to explain what has happened in my spirit, it all became clearer to me. God has been preparing me for this moment. He has undergirded me in ways I've never known before. He has made himself increasingly real and precious to me. He has given to me joy such as I've never known before, and I have no need to work at it. It just comes, even amidst the tears. He has taught me that he will lead me on whatever journey he chooses and will never leave me for a moment of that journey. God is good no matter what the diagnosis or the prognosis or the fearfulness of the uncertainty of having neither. What a word of comfort it is to know that God is good. Because God is good, he imparts his goodness to his people. That's why it says in verse 7, that God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
He's faithful to take care of his people in every crisis situation. God's people could run to him for, uh, for refuge from their oppressors. The Lord wants us to turn to him this morning. God knows those who take refuge in him. God will protect those who take refuge in him. God will save those who take refuge in him. But he will destroy his enemies. Friends, have you made God your refuge? Don't leave out of here today with that question unanswered. Don't leave out of here today without putting your faith in Jesus Christ. There's coming a day when God's patience will run out. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-9 through nine says this. Listen to this. It says, This is evidence of the, righteous, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flame and fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Judgment is coming. No one knows when they're going to die. No one knows when they're going to leave this earth. But you can be sure of one thing, you will be judged. Either you'll die and stand before Christ and be judged, or you'll see him when he comes on the cloud and you will be judged. But make no mistake about it. It's coming and it is nowhere that you can hide. When judgment day comes, family, we need to be found in Christ. That is the safest place in all the earth is to be found in Jesus Jesus on the cross, he took the judgment that we all deserve. Now, God's judgment against Assyria, that was just a glimpse of what Christ actually experienced on the cross when he absorbed the wrath of God fully. Christ was crucified. He died. He was buried. Three days later, rose from the dead, and now he's seated at the right hand. He has accomplished salvation for us all. He has defeated Satan, our greatest enemy, and has provided refuge for all who turn to him. For all who look to him for salvation, he's calling out to you today. Run to him. Cling to him. Take refuge in him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for reminding us, for reminding us all of what we deserve. But with you, there is forgiveness. And we thank you for that forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.